I um, gave Dave Furman that call that all pastors hate yesterday afternoon. I called him and told him that I was at the doctor's office. (laughs) And I wasn't sure if I was going to make it today. Um, I had had some just sharp, stabbing, double-me-over kind of pain in my abdomen. I was worried as I tend to do about any kind of illness, that it was, you know, the worst possible case, right? You know, it was appendicitis or something, and I was going to have to go get surgery, and I was thinking about all these things. As it turns out, the doctor said, I just have an amoeba, which is bad enough, right? But uh, as Dave and I talked, I said, I really, I want to be with the congregation up front. I feel like God has given me this sermon for you. Uh, I feel like as I've gone over the text this week that I wanted to bring to you the things that I think God has been showing me. So I'm going to sit down and take it a little easy and maybe go a little slower and you can pray for me that I'll get through. (laughs) Brian Parks is waiting in the wings if I have to leave. Uh, But I, I so wanted to be with you this morning and I so love you. I want you to know that. How dear you are to us. Those of us who lead here at Redeemer, we count you as one of the greatest privileges of our lives that we would come and be able to share not just the gospel, but our very lives as well, as Paul said to the Thessalonians. I was um, reminded this week about arguing. Uh, A young couple asked me and Leanne, if we argued anymore. <laughs> and uh, I, was, I was actually happy to report that we don't argue that much anymore. I mean, at least not in the last month or two, I think. Uh, oh, but I remember those first years together, those first early years of marriage. We've been married 34 years this, this December, and, you know, the first decade was... <laughs> I don't think we went a day without an argument. Leanne says uh, that she'd never known what it was to be angry at anyone until she married me. (laughs) So, uh, I think, uh, you know, every couple has kind of that that raw place, you know, those things that elicit the, the, the argument, right? You know, for Leanne and I, it's the gizmos. It's the computer. Honey... Will you help me with the computer? It's just an invitation to an argument, you know, right? And I can't, I don't know what, I can't get it, I can't get it right. I either patronize her, right? Well, honey, you know, she hates that. She hates that. Or then I go too fast, you know, you know, okay, click here, go there, give me the mouse, you know, kind of uh, do that. Uh, yeah, there you go. A secure web-based database, all set up. Yeah, you do it. You know, it's just... Do you argue with Do you argue with God? Do, do any of you argue with God? Maybe over your circumstances in life? Some some flat out just argue with God in righteous anger. You know, it's not fair. Or why me, Lord? Right? Others whine. I'm trying to faithfully follow you, and you don't even give me a goat to have a party with my friends. You know that. 
Some, I, I love these people, some people resort to trickery and manipulation. You know, okay, okay God, now look, if you give me this contract, like I'll, I'll give you 20%. And Lord, I just, I just want to remind you that very few people give 20%. You know what I'm saying? Right. Sometimes we argue with him because we don't like his demands, and so we get tricky theologically, right? You know, we, we kind of put together large words and half-baked cliches. And, you know, we must cast a hermeneutic of suspicion upon this passage, for clearly it is culturally defined. The Greek word ornithos, which is the Greek word for wine. You know, in other words, just saying, I just want to go get drunk with my friends, right? <laughs> Others are more clever. They pout. I'm not talking to you. I don't want to have my quiet time, right? You know, you know how it is. I think actually, I've I've done that a lot in my own life. I've done that in my own life. You know, when I didn't like the circumstances or the situation that God had me in, I would grow distant. You know, I I I wouldn't talk to him. I wouldn't go to him. I was, it was, it was kind of like, yeah, I may not be able to win the argument. You know, I'm, I was more clever. Because, you know, when you argue with God, you're, I'm, I promise you, you're not going to win, right? <laughs> but um, if I can't win the argument, I'm going to hurt his feelings. <laughs> Although it, it, it occurs to me that we've hurt much more than his feelings. Anyhow, most of us, I think recognize that arguing with God is a losing proposition. After all, he's God and we're not. In Mark chapter 12, especially last week as Dave walked us through the passage at the start of of the chapter, it was filled with people arguing with Jesus. They were in the temple of Jerusalem and they argued with God in deadly earnest. Now, what they should have known was that arguing with God was a losing proposition. So, in Mark 12, we see them, as they argue, come to the end of the argument. The tricky theologians, or those filled with righteous anger, have been silenced by the wisdom and the power and the knowledge of Jesus. It's kind of a, you know, it's kind of like smackdown. You you all know what smackdown is? Smackdown's like the... You know, World Wrestling Federation, you know, where the people get up on the ropes and they jump up in the air and they, you know, land on other people. It's all, it's all completely phony. No one ever gets hurt doing that. But it looks horrible, right? I mean, it looks just, and uh, actually my neighbor, my next door neighbor down the, the street from us, a, a couple houses, Adnan Arasi, uh, owns the rights to the World Wrestling Federation for all of the Middle East and Turkey, he told me, which is amazing. And uh, when he discovered I was from the part of the world where SmackDown was from, and Tennessee and Kentucky, he asked me if I knew some of the people in SmackDown. They have names like Bone Crusher, <laughs> The Undertaker. <laughs> I, I told Adnan I didn't know Undertaker. Jesus is powerful, more powerful than World Wrestling Federation. He's SmackDown. He takes them down because of what he knows. Now, one of the interesting things about the book of Mark as we go through it is it's compressed in time. 
So it, it starts out in years. The first part of the first half of the book of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, are years. But then when you hit chapter 9, after the confession of Peter, thou art the Christ. Suddenly you move in, in time, to just weeks and then hours. So the, the last part of the book of Mark is actually just hours. Here, we're here in chapter 12 of the book of Mark, and as Jesus is teaching in the temple, and he knows that his crucifixion is but hours away. What would you teach before you die? What would you teach before you die? Here's the passage that Jesus teaches on, starting in verse 35. He teaches on lordship. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself. And the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in this teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others who are contributing to the office offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, if, at first reading of these, these three stories, it almost appears as they're unconnected stories. But actually, these are tightly woven together. After, after all the arguments are over, after Jesus is smacked down the scribes and the Pharisees, it's as if Jesus says, okay, you asked your questions. I've got one for you. Let's talk about the Messiah. Now notice here, I, I love this. Jesus leads an inductive Bible study. It's on Psalm 110, the passage Frank read for us uh, earlier. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. In this Bible study, Jesus has an intro statement. There's a certain problem. He presents the text, Psalm 110. Then he asks questions with a comment about the fact that it's divinely inspired. He even has an application, right? He has an application to this. He's leading a Bible study, much like we would do here at Redeemer. This, this must warm the cockles of Glenn Jones's heart, right? <laughs> As Glenn superintends the, the small group Bible studies that are going on all around the city. And in this, he's pointing out that the Scriptures say that the Messiah 
is both God or Lord and man. And this is a problem for the scribes. They see that this is blasphemy. They, they have refused to see Jesus for who he claims to be, both the divine Son of God and the perfect man. They, they of course, should have known better. They're rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, not based on the evidence of Scripture, which they knew well, but because they hated Jesus' claim on their lives. You know, those of you who lead Bible studies for the church, you know how it is. It's right there in the text. You take people to the text, but people refuse to let the text guide their lives. Now, I will, I will acknowledge, there's a fundamental difference here, right? <laughs> there's a fundamental difference between you leading a Bible study and Jesus leading a Bible study. I mean, after all, he, he wrote the Bible. He knows the text, and he knows the text is about him. And yet still, we recognize that Jesus comes to us out of the Scripture. He confronts us. He says, here I am. What will you do with me? I have this claim on your life. And so, in one sense, the Bible study that Jesus leads in Psalm 110 2,000 years ago and the Redeemer Bible studies that many of you attended just last week are the same with the same problems. Because if we don't come to the text with humility, ready to align our lives with the Scripture, we miss Jesus. We miss Him. We miss him in our lives, just like the scribes miss Jesus. I I came to Christ as an ignorant, foolish, 17-year-old skiing in Switzerland. I was at a skiing and mountain climbing school in Zermatt, Switzerland. And uh, I was wicked and evil and lost. But a young man came to me and shared the gospel with me. I'd never heard it before. I'd never heard that you didn't have to earn your way to God. That's, that's, that was my mindset. And uh, my, heart, my heart leapt to the words of the gospel. He was, he was probably the first real Christian I'd ever met. The first genuine Christian. Or at least, at least uh, in a way that I could see. And I came to faith. The thing that most changed about my life, the thing that most transformed in my life was a a sudden love of the Bible. I had this um, Good News Bible. Those of you old enough to remember them, they're they're kind of a New English version. The Bible was actually written for those who speak English as a second language. Uh, But it was a simple Bible, and it was good for me. I, I remember just pouring over it, reading it, Day after day, soaking. It was like I'd been starved, you know? So I'm an 18-year-old kid, and I'm, I'm drinking in the Scriptures. I remember, I remember my first Bible studies that I ever attended, uh, where, where actually I realized the Bible had something to say about my life. It was not just kind of, it was not just kind of random you know, stories or proverbs. I guess I, maybe I had looked at the Bible like it was a, you know, a set of proverbs and rules and you kind of you read them and you, and you put these rules into your life. You know, you know what I mean? No, I, it was like, this is relevant. This has to... Over the years, I've 
continue to dwell in the Scriptures. I love the Scriptures. And one thing I've learned about them over the last 40 years, it's not good enough to just know the Scripture. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, verse 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scribes knew the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures better than you and I. And yet they refused to submit their lives to Jesus. This is just as easily said today. So, so I want to I implore you. Don't, don't be stubborn. Don't argue with God. Come to the Word humbly with a readiness to put it into practice. You, you know, that there's, um, there's so many things in the Christian life that only come to us as byproducts. It's kind of weird that way. Do you, do you know what I mean? Take, take happiness. If you pursue happiness directly, if your aim in life is to pursue happiness, you know what? You never get it. You, you get thrills maybe. But you don't get happiness. It's not true. You know, sink your teeth into happiness. Happiness is a byproduct of a life of service. Right? So if you serve others, you get happiness. It's a byproduct. The same, the same is true for, for all kinds of things. Joy. Uh, if you pursue joy directly, you get other things. You don't get it. Joy is a, a byproduct of a grateful heart. Right? So you, you, you have to ask yourself, if, if you don't feel joyful, am I grateful? Does that make sense? Well, the same is true for scriptural truth. If you want, if you want your life to be transformed by the scripture, if you want a life full of the truth of scripture, you can't approach the word academically. You, you can't approach it as just something to learn. In fact, that's very dangerous. You approach the word with humility. You let the word actively correct your life. You never set yourself over the word of God. You submit yourself to it. Be it a Bible study or a sermon, you come with a humble heart. Listen, if you come with a critical spirit, if you, if you come here to criticize what's going on, if your goal is to find the faults, I promise you, you're going to find them. <laughs> that, that, that's not going to be a problem for you. You're going to find all kinds of faults. And you will gain a critical spirit. You will gain a critical spirit. If you come humbly, on the other hand, if you come with humility, you find treasure. If you submit yourself to the Word of God, you find treasure. I have a, I have a couple ideas of practical ways to, to put that into practice. Um, one of the ways, obviously, is not to argue with God. Don't argue with God. Pre preach to yourself. 
You know, don't, don't, you know how it is. I know, I know how you are because I know how I am, right? You hear a truth. Maybe it's poignant. And you think, oh, I wish he heard that. Right? Oh, does my husband need to know that truth? Right? I know you. Oh, she should have heard that one. Right? Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself the truth. Don't argue with God. Preach to yourself. Don't think about others. Think about yourself when you come to the Word. The other thing to do, and I think this is very practical, distinguish between taste and truth. Um, there's all kinds of things we can do that about, right? In, right here in our, our, our service, in our worship service. Singing, for example. Singing, you know, the fights about singing and what people like about singing, what they don't like about songs, you know, almost always is about taste. But taste is superficial. It changes. I mean, if you like songs in two-four time, and I, I don't, I mean, it's just, it's just a taste, right? It's not enduring in your life. I, I, and I, you know, let me say, I'm, this is no critique on, on the songs that we sing today. I come from a generation that invented, do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me, you know that song? Oh, it's horrible. I remember singing it with gusto, thinking it was wonderful being raptured to God. You know, do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me. It's awful. I don't know, maybe you like that song. There was a time I liked that song. It's okay if you like that song. See, that's the taste. That's what I'm getting at. It doesn't matter. What, what's important is truth. Do Lord, oh do Lord, oh do remember me is truth, right? So you can sing that song. And... Go to God. Now, the same is true about prayer or ritual or the lack of ritual. These are kindergarten issues in the, in the Christian life. We, we think that you need to distinguish between taste and truth. So when Jesus calls us through His Word to holiness, we don't blow it off. If he calls us to self-sacrifice, we, we don't dismiss that out of hand. When the Bible is clear about church, about gathering together, or membership, or life together, examine your life about that. Examine your heart. When the Bible calls us to share our faith, to share our faith boldly, regardless of the consequences to yourself, think about it as a reality for your life. If if you don't, you see, if you don't do those things, you will cultivate an attitude that winds up looking a lot like the Pharisees. Listen, here's, here's something, just practically, here's something else you can do. Pull out the church covenant, especially, especially for those of you who are new members. I'm so glad that you took the, the step to, to join this body as an expression of your love for the community. I think that's a wonderful thing. Take out the, uh, take out the covenant and look it over. Uh, we, we, didn't, we didn't write the church covenant just out of some constitutional obligation. We really believe this stuff. We believe that we're called together to live like that. We took the biblical principles, as many as we could find, from, from the Scriptures. 
and saw them as a summation of life together. There's, there's of course, a lot more. There's a lot more in the scriptures than is contained in the church covenant. But the church covenant are biblical references about how we live together. And finally, practically, think about lordship. That, that's the, that was the specific talk, topic of Jesus' Bible study in Psalm 110 in the temple. It's about the lordship of Christ. And it's just rele- as relevant today as it was then. Do you call Jesus Lord? Do you call him Lord? Is he Lord of your life? Lordship means you've placed Jesus in charge of your life in all areas. You don't, you don't reserve certain spots in your life for yourself. You've given Jesus free access to all of your life. It's, it's not that you don't sin. Of course you still sin. We're sinners. Actually, you may become more aware of your sin the more Jesus becomes Lord of your life. But if Jesus is Lord of your life, you must be willing to submit to him to all areas. You can't can't follow Jesus and pick and choose which words you put into practice. You don't don't get that choice. It's it's above your pay grade. Do you, know, do you know what I mean when I say that, above your pay grade? That's, that may be, is that, I think that's just a British military term, actually. Is that right? It's above your pay grade. In other words, you don't, you've not been authorized. You don't have the ability to pick and choose those things that you're going to be obedient to when God calls us to be obedient. You can't do that. There's certain choices that not ours to make. Jesus says in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? The implication being that if you call him Lord, but choose to ignore him, you're not really a true follower of Christ. You know, lordship, this whole idea of lordship is a great time to take inventory in your life. So many people out there call themselves Christians who are not. And I think one of the hardest things I have to do is try and convince people who think they're Christians that they aren't. Maybe they think they're a Christian because they've grown up in the church. Maybe they think they're a Christian because they've raised their hand or walked an aisle. Or Usually it's because people, other people have told them they're Christians, right? Before they are genuinely, truly converted. They've never really turned from that true scribe-like, Pharisee-like unbelief and arguments to Christ in faith, humbly trusting in His forgiveness with their lives and being reborn in the power of the gospel, following Him with a humble heart. Now, there's a whole host of reasons people do that. But listen, what God cares about, what God cares about is where you are right now. Have you truly repented of sin and turned to God humbly with your whole life? Have you made Him Lord? I mentioned that um, Jesus had an application from His Bible study, right? We all, all good Bible studies should have application. And the application here is verse 38 through 40. Don't be like the scribes, where he says, beware the scribes. 
He's saying, let me tell you what lordship doesn't look like. So he talks about Jesus as Lord. He talks about himself as Lord in the first verses, 35 through 37. In 38 through 40, he gives an illustration of what it's not. He says, beware the Pharisees. It doesn't look like, it doesn't look like them. Lordship doesn't look like them. Because their first interest is what people think about them. Listen, we, we should all ask the question, because it's true for all of us, do you think a lot about what other people think about you? <laughs> uh, well, I know it's true. I know you do. Most of us think mostly about what other people think of us. But, but look what Jesus says about the scribes. Their only thought is about themselves. They exist if God is not real. That the only thing important is external. The only thing important to the scribes and the Pharisees were outside stuff. But for Jesus, true lordship is about the heart. Jesus is saying you need to be worried about the heart before you ever worry about what other people think about you. Christianity is internal, not external. You need to, you need to think about what God thinks about you first. You need to make sure that your prayers are real. You avoid hypocrisy. That is, you avoid religious pretense and show while secretly enriching your life by stealing from the most disadvantaged. Listen, just a, a comment about Jesus' comment on the prayers of the scribes. He mentions long prayers. This is in verse 40. But the issue really isn't long prayers or spontaneous prayers or prepared prayers or emotional prayers. The issue is that the Pharisees give a prayer for show. Do you see that? For pretense. They don't believe in prayer. They're only interested in how they come off. So, so hopefully our, our aspiration, our deep desire is when we pray together, be in small groups or one-on-one or when we, when we pray from the front at Redeemer, week to week our heartfelt desire is that our prayers are true offerings to God, not a show. It's communal prayer when we pray together in the service. It's sincerely offered. Avoid the, avoid the kindergarten idea that prayers are real because of form. It doesn't matter if it's spontaneous or, or if it's informed by, by thinking and writing it down. Spontaneous prayers can be sh- for show, just like prepared prayers can be as well. It's, it's the condition of the heart. And if you're not pushing into prayer beyond form, you're missing God. You're missing Jesus. Notice, notice too here that the scribes don't really care for people. They care about what people think about themselves. But they don't care for people. They rip off widows. Jesus said the scribes are eating the homes of poor widows. So just to recap their sin, they have no concern for God. They only care about how they're treated by men. They practice religion for show and pretense and selfish gain. Ultimately, their sin is to exist as if they are the Lord of the, of the universe, right? Their lives are the center 
of the universe. It's a heartless religion. And Jesus tells us, beware such people. He promises that they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, we need to be really careful here, right? We, we, need, to, we need to be very careful when we approach the Pharisees. Because if you're going to preach to yourself about this, if you preach to yourself about the Pharisee, you're going to find one in your heart. He or she is there. In Luke 18, Jesus talks about the Pharisee's prayer and attitude. In verse 9, he says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all I get. But the tax collector, standing off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now notice when Jesus tells this story about the Pharisee, he tells it to those who are confident about their own righteousness. We, we can do the same thing. We can be so confident about our own righteousness, right, that we can pray, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like that wicked Pharisee. Right? <laughs> you know, so we've come full circle. Because it's really not the point of what Jesus is doing in the text in Luke 18. What he's doing in the text is talking to people who are confident of their own righteousness. So the Pharisee in your heart tells you you are self-righteous. You are made righteous through your own works, through your own doing. What you do, that's self-righteous. What we aim for, what we want, is to be made righteous by God. So, root out the Pharisee in your heart. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, put to death what is earthly in you. That is, examine your life. Root out the sin of the scribes. Confess it to God. And nail it to the cross. In so doing, you kill sin in yourself. If you confess, like the tax collector, you go home justified. You know, um, I, don't, I don't really like big words. And I don't particularly use big words. But when God uses big words, we need to know what they mean. And there's a big word here, justified. What does that mean? To go home, to go to your home. I would pray that, that many of you would go home to your home today, justified before God. That is to be made righteous by God before Him. It's actually not a religious term. Justified is a legal term. It means to be made righteous by a judge. In this case, the judge the Lord God. 
our justification and the justification of the tax collector came because it was the fruit of his faith, the fruit of his confession, the fruit of his humility. And that's what we need as well. So Jesus has a Bible study on lordship. He says it doesn't look like this guy, the scribe. It doesn't look like them. Beware them. Actually, finally, he says this is what it does look like. He gives us a role model of true lordship in the widow. The Bible study ends. Jesus sits down in the temple. He's watching people give their money in the temple. He sees this woman give a donation to the temple. I did a little math. Uh, these, uh, these leptons, these small copper coins, two of them made a penny. Nigel Ray has one in his pocket if you want to look at them. You can actually see them. They made them by the bajillions. They're still around. You can buy them on the internet for like 50 bucks. They made so many of them. Um, it's nothing. It's about three dirhams. 128th of a denarius, a day's wage. So, you know, it depends on how much you make, right? 120 is nothing. Now, I, I'm fascinated by Jesus' response to her. He doesn't stop her from giving to a wicked system. In fact, he's giving to the very system that, the, uh, that he's just condemned, that the, that the scribes have done. He says they devour widows' homes. She's a widow, and they're taking all she has. He doesn't stop her from that. It's not the point. She's giving to God. And God sees it. She's giving everything she has to God. Brothers and sisters, that's our hope as we give. That's because our giving has to do with our hearts, not our abundance. I mean, it's right, it's right to talk about the relative nature of giving to God. How in God's economy... I, how, how this works, I don't know, but in God's economy, a small amount out of your poverty can be more than Bill Gates out of his abundance. Take heart in that. Take heart in knowing that as you give, God sees that and he applies that principle so that when you sign a check to the church, it's more about, it's more about what's happening in your own heart. It's internal when you write a check to the church, you're writing a declaration of independence from living like a Pharisee. And it's a joy, uh, it, just, to, just to fulfill all righteousness here, <laughs> let me say it's a joy to tell you that because I'm not paid by the church. I'm, I'm just a lay member. Uh, I, I don't take any money from the church. I don't want to take any money from the church. So it's a joy for me to encourage you along with me to give. Give generously. Give to the church. Because... When you do, you slay, you slay that Pharisee in your heart. Now, because giving is relative, it's a double-edged sword, right? Those of you who don't have very much money, what you give out of your poverty is an astounding fortune in the eyes of God. But those of us who have been more blessed, you don't want to just give out of your abundance either. In fact, it, it produces a rule of thumb for us about, about giving. The Bible says give cheerfully. But those of us who give just out of abundance are just kind of tipping God, you know, <laughs> a little tip for the service. We don't want to do that. We want to give with a little sting to it, 
little hurt. You want to hurt a little. And listen, many of you are in such debt that you're giving what could be going to God to Visa or MasterCard. You need to get out of debt so that you can give. Don't, don't give to the banks. <laughs> uh, we want to occupy Redeemer, right? <laughs> occupy Redeemer with the glory of the Lord. Slay your trust in money. Put everything you have to Him. Let's think about this. You know, I think it's easy to, to dismiss, uh, dismiss the words of, that Jesus had about the widow here. This idea that you should give everything you have to God. And, and, you know, we kind of spiritualize it. Well, he doesn't really mean give everything, you know. He means, you know, okay, a, you know, a tithe. Well, I just want to challenge that. I just want to say, you know, if you gave everything you had to God, you gave him all your money, it would be a wonderful thing. If he demanded it, if he demanded it of you, he would be in his perfect right to do it. If the requirements from a righteous and holy God was for you to give all your money before you could ever enter into heaven, it would be a bargain. You'd be thrilled about that. But he doesn't. It's not enough. (laughs) You don't have enough money to buy your way into heaven. The world doesn't have enough money to buy its way into heaven. I fear so many of us have our hands tightly wrapped around three dirhams. There's only one price. There's only one price. Jesus said it just two chapters ago in Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. It took the precious lifeblood of Christ to ransom our lives. The life of God's own Son had to be offered for you. The payment has been made. All that's left is your response to have faith in the works of Jesus. The work accomplished on the cross where your sin and mine were placed on Him. His offer allows all that would turn from sin. All that would give their lives in faith to Christ to know Him for all your days. And in the end, you see, this widow represents complete and total and utter reliance on God. So it's not just your money. It's all that you are. She helps us understand that God honors the heart in our giving and in all of our lives. It's the model. She is the model that Jesus picks to illustrate lordship for all of us. True lordship is a complete and utter dependence on God with everything you have. Bring everything to Him. Offer it to Him. Your money, your talents, your time, your family, your aspirations, your job, everything goes to Him. Let it go. Unclench the fist. Give yourself to God. In summary, this passage today is just a passage about Jesus having a short Bible study on Psalm 110. He talks about who is the Lord. 
He tells us how that doesn't look in the scribes. And he tells us what it does look in the widow who gave her all to God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm mindful of Paul's word to the Corinthians that your power is made known in our weakness, Lord. And I feel so weak. And yet, and yet, Lord, your, your word goes out and calls to yourself those who would follow you. It's a great mystery, Lord. That you could actually take Scripture and put a mark on eternity by people turning to you, loving you, humbly allowing their lives to be searched by the Scripture, to be submitted by the Scripture. Oh God, I pray that people would take hold of that. And that one day, when we stand before your throne, one day, when those of us who have not counted on our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, will see your great glory and we will know the greatest joy of all. Face-to-face communion with you. Thank you, O God. We pray in Jesus' name.